podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome. Uh, my guest today is Don Kane from Kisaki Kai. Uh, and we're going to be talking about injuries, bare feet and all the other stuff. Today. Hello, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, got me mid slope of a coffee there. Um, <laughs> That's you know, I, I'm, I'm... I, I slowed down a little <laughs> bit just to keep it, allow you to drink. <laughs> uh, no, all is good, thank you very much. How about you? I'm very good. Uh, the reason I was want to talk to you, Don, is because I am fan of your work. I um, you. like your thoughts on the stuff, and I thought we can um, have a meaningful conversation instead of focusing on mental health, um, focusing on our um, physical abilities and recovery. And I think, you know, healthy body equals better mind. Um, yeah. So that's kind of go from one to the other uh, nicely. And you just recovering from the operation. Um, do you want to... Yeah. Share some info into that, if that's not uh, too intrusive in your private life. No, not at all. Um, it's a good way to start. Yeah, I've, I've basically been in uh, uh, sort of rehabilitation after a hernia repair operation, which was... How are you? In a way, it came at the right time because we were in lockdown. It actually meant that I could um, actually take some decent time to recover. Um, even with the stuff going on on Zoom, I managed to pre-record a few classes before we went into lockdown. So I just kept the classes going throughout my rehab. Um, talking about probably coming up to two and a half months in now, post-op, and things are yeah pretty good actually, pretty strong, pretty mobile. So I'm not unhappy with it at all. I, I just forgot that uh, I didn't do introductions. Um, so though, those who don't know who Don is. Uh... Type in Don came and you're gonna know everything from the Uncle Google. Uncle Google knows everything, so you can Google him up. He was my guest before, and most of you who listen to my podcast know who he is anyway. He's the guy who punches in the nose when he meets you. That's what he is. <laughs> you're never gonna let me live that down, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a fun story to say to people, you know. I met mm. him in Hebrew and he made me bleeding for half an hour. Um Always a good story. By going back to the hernia, hernia is a funny one because they are not so keen to operate. Because I've got several friends who are now having herniated um, either abs or a groin, and yeah. um, if that's not big enough, they're saying just now we're not going to be operating. It's not worth it. You have to wait till it's going to go properly. Yeah, well, basically that's what it was. So I decided um, the hernia is probably about two or just over two years old. Mm. Um, and when I did it, uh, I was determined to actually manage it without actually going down the operation route, which I did quite successfully for a long time. But then it just got to a point where um, I was just a little bit too much in denial, I think. And I realized that it was time to, to do something about it because it was getting worse. I mean, the incision site, um, not that I want anyone to be squeamish, is actually, I was expecting sort of a keyhole surgery type thing. And I've ended up with uh, an incision that's like five or six inches across. Oh, right. so it's, a, it's a fairly decent um, size. Uh, it was obviously a pretty decent hernia, I think. But, uh, it, you know, I managed it quite well for the best part of two years. Um, and I think the timing was just right to, to get it done, to get the operation done. And they were really good. I got in quite quickly. Um, and the, the guy who did the operation was really good. The service was really good. I was in and out in a day. Um, nobody tells you about the uh, constipation that you experience mm -hmm. afterwards, which is probably the most painful thing of the entire uh, thing. Because um, you're not supposed to increase your abdominal pressure. Mm. Uh, and of course, if you're um, um, constipated, you can't go. You're doing nothing but increasing your intra-abdominal pressure. Yeah. Um, so that was that was excruciatingly painful for about uh, 48 hours. But then things started to ease without going into too much detail. 
<laughs> taking various uh, sort of laxatives to move things through, it uh, it did the job eventually. Mm. So how long it took, took you to recover from it? Uh, realistically, I'm still recovering. Um, I still have to be careful about um, lifting anything heavy or awkwardly, which I now is probably uh, sort of among the worst time because you forget that it happened. You feel quite strong. You feel quite capable. And it's only when you turn poorly or you don't connect that uh, uh, the, the pain, you would get reminded of it. You get a little reminder, a little nudge, say, yeah, you're not ready to do that yet. But that's okay. Another month or so and everything will be back to normal. For the most part, uh, I'm doing my karate practice. Uh, I'm doing some bodyweight resistance stuff. I've yet to start swinging kettlebells around again, but I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's moving along quite nicely. Yeah, I think that's the problem with people and injuries is that um, we are on that borderline when it's not properly healed, but it's not giving us a pain. So we start stop forget start forgetting about it and then getting re-injured. Or we start testing, looking for yeah. that 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 pain threshold when it starts and he's thinking, shit, I just done it again because I'm a stupid person. I know I'm injured, but I'm testing myself. Oh, I can do a little bit more. Now just wait a week longer and you'll be fine, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. It's silly things. We had a, a, a food delivery uh, and picking up one of the trays from the food delivery and twisting and mm. just not thinking about doing it. And as soon as I did it, I thought that was the wrong thing to do. But, you know, I haven't done it since. So gets me out <laughs> of unpacking the shopping. That's, that's, that's one bonus. It, it's it, it is it is strange the healing from it um have you been i know that over the years the advice is changing all of my students my younger students have hip replacements and knee replacements um and i noticed that how the advice from the doctors post surgery changed you know 10 to 15 years ago you've been said you know you have to rest don't do mm. anything now, within two hours after op, when you've kind of sobered up, woke up, off you go, start walking, recovery. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why that is. I don't know if that's because of uh, lack of space. They don't want to occupy beds. They want to get you in, get you out. I think that possibly has something to do with it. Uh, many, many years ago, I had uh, something called uh, an angiogram, uh, a cardiac catheterization where they uh, basically make an incision in the aorta and they pass a catheter uh, up and they pump a dye in and they watch the way the heart works. Mm -hmm. And um, when I had that done, uh, I had to pretty much lay motionless. I think it was 24 hours. Um, it might have been longer, but I think it was 24 hours. You had to just lay in bed for 24 hours to make sure that everything knits up and then they, they send you home if you they do it now you're in and out same day mm, interesting i read some some um uh studies that actually the the motions for an injured joint is much better healing when it's moving than it's static because yeah. the stiffness of the uh, muscles around preventing them functionally properly and the blood is not flowing enough to it plus the scar yeah. tissue and stuff like that. And, you know, it's recently I was reading as well about the putting ice on and flushing the swelling. And they said, mm. now you should keep the swelling because it stabilizes the joint and allows the quicker recovery through movement. Yeah. So it's interesting how, how things changing. And how, how things that always work? change. Yeah. How's that from your point of view? Because you are a sports are you a physio? I can't remember exactly. No, I, your, I, I did sport and exercise um, science. Okay. It was sport and exercise science at Brighton University um, down in Eastbourne, part of Chelsea School. There's an interesting combination for you. And it? it's Chelsea School, which is part of Brighton University, but we're based in Eastbourne. All right. Yeah. Um, typical, but, yeah. typical English thing, you know, yeah. fill up with liters, <laughs> uh, measuring MPGs. Feet versus it, yeah. stuff. You know, I had a manager at work who was giving us a tent sizes in halving feet and halving meters. And yeah, that's what I do all the time. Yeah. All go the time, I'm constantly mixing up my my inches and my meters, my inches and my centimeters. <laughs> I go from imperial to metric and back again uh, at the drop of a hat. 
it makes it things very difficult when you're measuring up for something, particularly if you don't remember which ones are inches and which ones aren't. Yeah. Um, so what what um, strategies you would recommend for people who suffer the injury? Because you had the back injuries in the past. You you took up yeah. uh, Pilates and, and, and start teaching that for recovery. Um, what would you, you know, got young person got injured, what you would advise to do? Um, well, I think first things first is if you if the injury is serious enough, you need to see a specialist. Mm. Now, I'm not a physio, uh, I'm not an osteopath, I'm not a chiropractor. Uh, they all have their strengths and weaknesses, I think, when it comes to treatments. But it's finding somebody. Uh, generally, I would go to somebody who has some sort of sports specialist background, not because I'm a sports person, but because they understand the importance of movement. Mm. Whereas sometimes the more mainstream uh, treatments tend to overlook not just the fact that we need to move, but actually the impact that movement has on our psychological welfare, welfare as well. Mm -hmm. So it's really important if you've got somebody who uses their movement as a, a, a sort of a coping mechanism to tell them they can't move is the worst thing you can do. So you need to have somebody who can guide you into uh, a, the correct path for the individual, really. Um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, from my point of view, a lot of the injuries I've experienced, uh, hardly any of the injuries I've had, the bad injuries I've had, have actually been from martial arts. It's been from other things. Um, and even... Again, possibly just because I've been doing it for such a long time, even when I've actually been carrying an injury, what I tend to do is I, my martial arts movements are one of the things that are least impacted on because it's such a part of who I am and how I move. So that tends to be um, sort of part of my coping mechanism. So that if that was taken away from me, for example, in the first sort of six weeks post-op, from um, having the, the hernia repair, I couldn't really do anything. Most most I could do was get up and walk from one room to another. So that was quite harsh. That was quite hard. That was a hard time to, to deal with it. But as soon as we can start getting back to normal-ish movement patterns, um, it starts to make us feel more comfortable uh, mentally, physically. We feel like we're not sort of wasting away um, in either sense, as I say, mental or, or physical sense, but we are doing something proactive um, to aid our recovery. And most of the time when you see a specialist, particularly, as I say, if you've got somebody who is a sports specialist, a specialist in sports medicine or treatment, uh, because they understand how important movement is to the individual, they will structure uh, their treatment based around that movement. A good example is when I hurt my back, I, I um, uh, had a prolapsed disc. I ruptured the disc and um, I went to probably about four or five different specialists. Each one said, oh, you know, you're going to have to give up your martial arts. You're not going to be able to do any resistance training. You've got to really change the way you do things, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I wasn't happy with that. And although I didn't necessarily have the way out of it myself at that point in time, I just kept on seeing specialists until I found one who said, oh, yeah, that's fine. Don't worry. We'll get you back doing what you do. You'll be fine. You'll be, you'll be as strong as ever. That's the one I went to see, and that's the one I spent my money on, um, the one who actually said, oh, no, we can get you doing your stuff again. It was important that they were on the same uh, uh, route as me, uh, you know, they're on, on, on the same page as me, um, because I think that often happens it's easy to be discouraged if you have somebody around you saying, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. We need to surround ourselves, not just from an injury point of view. We need to surround ourselves with people who say, yeah, you can do that. Yeah. In anything, you know, writing a book or, or you know, running, um, playing basketball, uh, deciding that you're going to take up playing a musical instrument, learning the language. You want to have somebody who's you want to have people around you. You want to be surrounded by people. Who are saying, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, you mm. can do that. It might take a while, but you can do that. If that's what you want to do, you'll do it. Um, and I think that's that's really important. And I think as a mindset, that is probably 
one of the most important things for you to do, be it for recovery from injury, uh, be it for skill development, or be it for anything else. Mm, I definitely yeah. agree with you. Um, it's funny that uh, most of us and most of my people are getting injured outside of martial arts. I think because we, we're paying attention to be safe within the martial arts and we're yeah. dropping the guard outside. So amount of people in, in my club getting injured from skiing, cycling, and all that dangerous stuff. I keep telling them, just stop doing the nonsense and keep training. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. You Give up all that, that da those dangerous sports. Give up all those dangerous yeah. activities. Stick to something nice and safe like martial arts training. Yeah. That's got to be the way forward. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. But I think you're I, right. It's mindful. Yeah. You know, martial arts in its very essence is mindful movement. Mm. Um, and I think that's what we sometimes lack elsewhere. We, we, go, we drift into autopilot so often in our lives. And I think one of the reasons I find martial arts so therapeutic and so pleasurable is the fact that it isn't something you don't coast. You are, you are in the moment mm. when you do your martial arts. And that is such a rarity these days. And particularly yeah, I, with like the last 18 months of lockdown, it's been a nightmare. Yeah, I was talking today with the... Uh, well, I was talking a week ago. <laughs> it's going to be a week ago. Um, <laughs> with uh, the author Melanie, Melanie Gibson. And she sums, sums her up. Sums, um, she have a good conclusion on this one. Because I won't pronounce the other one. Um, and she <laughs> said, you know, you have to be focused in martial arts. Because if you're not, you're gonna be punched in the face. Yeah. So you have to, you have to, you know, pay attention. If not, you're gonna be punched in the face. Simple as that. <laughs> so. Yeah. I knew we get back to being punched in the face again. At some yeah, point. I didn't pay attention, way. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is the thing. Life punches you in the face regularly. Mm. Yeah. And so you know, it helps to do an activity that helps you become more mindful about mm. things. You know, and. The thing is, you know, it's a bit like self. I was having this conversation with somebody this morning, um, doing a, a, a personal training session, and uh, we were talking about um, being punched in the face. Funny enough, mm -hmm. as as you do, common theme. Um, and we were saying that, you know, from the point of view of self defence, the importance of actually understanding that you are going to get hit, you do get hit, you are going to survive getting hit, mm -hmm. and that you can continue to do what you. Uh, need to do not always but mostly you know uh, a punch in the face doesn't mean things are over you know punch yeah. in the face is got a wake-up call in many ways uh, and tells us that uh, actually we either need to address the way that we train adapt the way that we train or you know we just got to do something different it might even just tell us uh, this isn't for me i'm going to go and do something else i'm going to take up knitting or crochet or uh, pottery or um, something that better appeals to uh, uh, my, my psyche but I think most people involved in the martial arts don't really have uh, that much of a problem. I might be speaking too broadly here uh, with being hit. They accept the fact mm. that we're doing a martial art. We are going to get hit. But to be honest, for most people, it's no more than the rough and tumble we used to experience in, in the, the, the school playing field. Mm. You know, it's no more than um, playing a game of rugby or playing a game of football or hockey or you know so it's something that it's it's the mindset it's it's the state of mind we accept it it's part of what we do yeah we we move on we develop we improve definitely um that brings us to the next subject um barefoot training so i posted uh -huh. a, few months ago, a few months ago you know why do we stick to the barefoot training, especially the traditional community, uh, was picking on me that we train in shoes sometimes. That was actually a silly thing to pick on me because it was during COVID, so <clears throat> we had to train shoes. I, pref I prefer yeah. training without shoes. I mm -hmm. think that uh, it's very good for uh, my foot structure, muscles, yeah. deep muscles, proprioceptions, and just all around it's good for you, uh, especially for children. But why would people hate shoes you know i can see benefits of training in the shoes as well because we yeah. walk in them all the time so we need to have a habit of fighting in the shoes because yeah. when you put the shoes on uh, everything goes the stances are going nah i'm not doing that in the shoes your knees saying no we're not doing that what are your thoughts on that 
it's yeah it's a really good point and i think you've already made some of the most relevant ones uh, most important ones and that is that realistically um if we've got our feet encased in footwear all the time it changes the way the foot moves it takes it changes the articulation it changes the posture um it changes the way we foot strike we don't use the foot properly when it's wrapped up all the time um that said I wouldn't want to walk around outside without something on my feet. I have a, a good friend who's really into barefoot running mm-hmm. and they run everywhere without anything on their feet rather than the me, I have to say, you know, and good on them for doing it, but it's not something, you know, there's all sorts of horrible things you would tread in outside. Yeah. So you need footwear outside. There's an argument. I know there's a movement towards uh, sort of um, uh, uh, flat shoes, this idea of, um, barefoot shoes to replicate the movement and i think that it depends on the individual's posture mm-hmm. now if we put it into two categories now I'm, I'm talking very broadly here and i don't want to go into like great in-depth stuff not necessarily be, you know because i don't think people were interested but i think we keep it nice and basic um it's easy to understand and that is that we have two types of primarily two types of posture the most common is an anteriorly tilted pelvis where the pelvis drops forwards so we have that little bit of extension in the lower back uh the pelvis tilts forwards it shortens our hamstrings uh, shortens our hip flexors and, and shortens and tightens our lower back so if that's how we naturally stand without shoes when we put shoes on that have half an inch heel inch heel whatever then that actually pitches us into our toes more forces the anterior tilt to become more severe and puts far much more pressure on the the lower back. Mm -hmm. So that in itself isn't necessarily a problem unless it's always the the case. So unless we take those shoes off and we work bare feet and we work on that idea of releasing down through the tailbone, creating a neutral pelvis, opening up, releasing the front of the hips, opening up and releasing the lower back, then that is always going to be tight. And we know that it's an epidemic, um, certainly in the West, this idea of short, tight hip flexors, um, tight hamstrings, tight lower back, big, big problem. And that's because we spend most of our time sitting. We sit flexed. Mm. So everything's flexed, so everything's tight. So what we need to do is get up and move more. Now, let's sort of forget shoes on, shoes off for the moment and just think about the foot. The foot itself needs to be mobile um if your foot is very stiff and very immobile it's very difficult to connect to the floor you know it's very difficult uh i I refer to it so you either stand in your feet or you stand on your feet so you're either balanced you know just there's no real connection if we have shoes on all the time we don't really feel that connection with the floor we take the shoes off we can start to explore the feet more um we can spread the toes we can wriggle the toes we can move through the midfoot we can uh, create movement more effectively through the the ankle so it allows us to get some dexterity back into the feet and this is really important i tend to most days i will massage my feet i'll bend i'll flex and extend my toes i will flex and extend the mid midfoot i will rotate my ankles and don't get me wrong i have really stiff ankles and feet so i need to do that um but that makes it much harder to connect a lot of uh, falls in in elderly people are because they become very stiff and immobile in their feet so they lose that um ability to make those micro adjustments to uh, maintain their balance so it's really important that we do work with nothing on our feet however there are issues with uh footwear as we said if we've got an anterior tilted pelvis uh, and we've got heels on pitches the weight into the toes changes the 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 way we uh express or or we uh improve our posture it shortens the the hip flexors it shortens the muscles in the back makes things very very tight increases that anterior tilt there are uh, there's a percentage of the population that actually um, 
have a posteriorly tilted pelvis. Mm. So their natural tendency is for that tailbone to drop uh, almost to the point where they collapse into uh, uh, that um, rounded back position. They're, so they're quite tight in the pecs. They've got, you know, again, they've got this idea of, um, again, tight hamstrings, exhibits quite highly in posteriorly tilted um, pelvis. But also what we see is that for them, actually putting shoes on is quite good because by elevating the heel, it starts to bring the pelvis into a more neutral alignment. Mm -hmm. So if we can pay attention to our pelvis position with our feet, we choose on and off our feet, then ultimately, you know, the work we do barefoot is going to impact on what we do with shoes on. A typical example, if I take a step through in, a, in a Zenku Sadachi, um, realistically, if we look at the structure of the leg, the ankle is a shock absorber. So we want to be walking sort of toe to heel more than heel to toe. If we have an elevated heel, walking properly, if that's the right term, I'm sure people will um, take umbrage at that. But if we say that uh, a typical foot strike should be toe to heel, not heel to toe. Um, and the reason I say that is we look at the structure and the ankles are a shock absorber. So when we land, we don't have that jarring through the rest of the system. We don't have that jarring in the spine. We don't have that jarring in the hips, in the knees. But if we have a heel strike first, um, you know, you can you feel the difference straight away. All you have to do is take your shoes off, take a step forwards, land um, through uh, toe to heel, and then take another step heel to toe, and you feel a big difference on the way that uh, impacts through the rest of the body. Um, so I think it's really important to understand the role uh, that footwear has, offers protection, offers, uh, again, you know, really important if somebody has any sort of uh, gait anomalies that uh, maybe they have to have a, an elevated uh, insole um, to change the way they stand. People, for people like that, footwear is really, really important. Mm. Yeah? Um, doesn't mean they still shouldn't train without footwear occasionally. We need to have that balance between with and without, I think. Mm. Um, if I before I get too ranty, I think is that that cover what we were yeah. wanting to say uh, about? I, I, I think with the, with that heel to toe and toe to heel, it is best to watch children. If you yeah. see how children start walking, they always yeah. walk from the toes down because even for adults, just tell people in dojo run, and you don't have yeah. any single person running heel to toe. Everybody mm. goes tippy toppy because it's just uncomfortable, and, and that's how we evolve to run. Um, well, that's why running shoes were devised to have such thick heels mm. to actually absorb some of that shock as you yeah. as you go into that foot strike. Um, but now, you know, the barefoot runners uh, and the like are actually um, turning away from the thick padded heels, mm. the, the padded soles, and actually going for a much flatter uh, footwear. I mean, personally, um, if I my shoes, I always try and keep a low heel um, or no heel. Um, I wouldn't exclude it completely, but I wouldn't buy a, a shoe with a heel just because of the way it looks. You know, mm. I always think about the functional functionality of it. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of um, uh, barefoot things, barefoot, barefoot yeah. shoes, because it just helped fix my knee. I had a, I've got a knee pain since. 2002, but a yeah. uh, sports doctor, uh, one of the bigger teams in my town, football team, said, um, you can go on operation, but it might be worse. So if you can walk on it, walk on it. And I go by that for, what, 15, 20 years now. Yeah. And it periodically go wrong. So I strengthen it. Then, of course, I forget that I need to strengthen it and go back again. Always the way. When things get better, <laughs> we ignore the stuff that got it better. Yeah, it's it worse than everything. Oh, I must start doing that again. But yeah, I think but that's but a good point. Switching to uh, the barefoot uh, shoes for as much as I can, it helps a lot. I think that's really important because, again, um, knee problems, hip problems often relate to the way we foot strike, the way that we stand. Yeah. Um, and you typically look at anyone's shoe and it will give you an indication uh, as to the, any sort of excessive wear around the heel, around the outside of the foot, around the inside of the foot. It'll give you a, an indication of how, how they stand. Obviously, you can look at how they stand and you look at how they move. Um, but I think that we've got to think about it as a whole complex 
rather than just what's going on through the foot. Mm. Now, if the foot's connected properly, uh, the knee alignment is going to be sound. The mm. knee's are always a dodgy one. It's a hinge joint, you know, so it only likes to flex and extend. Any sort of lateral movement there, it's not very happy with. So if we tend to um, either overly pronate or supinate through the foot, uh, turn in, turn out, mm. then we tend to find that it puts a lot of stress on the inside or outside of the knee. Um, so finding that correct alignment is uh, really, really quite important. And I don't think you necessarily find that in footwear because it modifies. It's a bit like standing on thick mats. Yeah. You know, you have to work a lot harder to work out your proprioception, to work out your balance um, than if you're standing on a thin mat or if you're standing on a wooden floor. Mm. So shoes, particularly overly cushioned shoes, do the same thing. They might feel nice and comfortable, but they're not necessarily doing you. Um, uh, so anyone's got heavily cushioned shoes out there, don't worry. If you enjoy wearing them, that's fine. Uh, it's just my opinion that uh, uh, they won't necessarily be doing much for your, your posture or for your gait, your movement. I think in the book um, Born to Run, they've been showing the studies on that actually with a um, thick sole on the heel, you're producing more impact to the knee because before mm. your foot gonna notice that is the the connection, it pushes much harder. So actually yeah. there's uh, increased force going back to your knee from that stomp because your yeah. body wants to feel what's going on under. So it's trying to connect to the ground. Yeah. But going, going to the knees, um, I think one thing which might help, we stopped completely doing the rotations of the knees as a warm-up. We mm -hmm. only do hinging. So kind of semi-squats to warm up. I don't do rotations anymore um, yeah. because um, I believe it's grinding your knees. Um, are you still doing, is it correct to do a minimal movement or low, big circles or just stop? Um, I think circles are okay. If we're talking about knee circles, from my point of view, um, I think that's more about moving in the hip and ankles than it is about circling the knees. Um, so, yes, there's, I mean, every joint, we talk about joint movement um, in sort of fairly simplistic terms. It's always Connection. leeway. Yeah, so there's always a little bit of leeway there. But generally speaking, if you're doing, doing knee circles, small circles, don't go outside the line of the feet. Make sure that actually what you're focusing on is mobilizing through the ankle, through the hip, which mm -hmm. actually allows you a lot more movement. Um, so they are supporting the, the movement through the knees. If you, A lot of the times when we focus on a particular, it's a bit like in stances. When we go into a stance and somebody says bend your knee um, or bend your knees, it has a knock-on effect to the way that we stand. Mm -hmm. Rather than lower your center of gravity, sink your pelvis. You know, if you sink your pelvis, you're going to bend your knees. But if we focus on bending the knees, it throws everything else out. So the bending of the knees is a byproduct of doing everything else right. Mm -hmm. I if I want to knee, move my knee over my foot, I want to push back through my foot to bring my knee forwards rather than push my knee forwards, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, so just looking at the things from a structural point of view and thinking about it as, as, a, say, as a whole complex rather than an isolation. And I think that makes a big difference in in the way that we move. So you you I don't know if you've got that in in because Kisakikai is based on on Shotokan evolved from the Shotokan. Um, so I don't see that very often in Shotokan groups. But in Gojuryu, there's always that tucking the pelvis forward to make a lower back flat. And yeah. I kind of I agree and disagree with that motion because naturally we've got the curve in the spine. And taking yeah. it out of it, it's kind of um, making the design with the flow a bit. Yeah. Um, well, so why it's so you, can, you have a rest, you have a wrestling background, don't you? Yeah. So when you assume a wrestling posture, um, you're not doing it with your uh, natural curve in your lower back. No. You're coming forwards. Your tailbone drops, and this again, I think sometimes this is misunderstood. First of all, my background. Uh, Kisaki is, is what I teach it's what I train in my background is in Wado uh, not Shotokan so I can't talk about it from a Shotokan perspective uh, particularly um, but if we think in terms of a spinal alignment 
Uh, you have primary and secondary curves. You have the curve in the neck, uh, shoulder blades, lower back, uh, tailbone. Uh, and the idea is that most of our work, if we're not involved in impact, wants to be done from a neutral pelvis. And by that, I mean allowing the natural curves to be there. It's the least stress on the spine. Mm -hmm. When we engage, I teach my guys, when we get hands-on, as soon as you make a physical connection, you think about deepening or soft uh, drawing down through the tailbone, lengthening through the crown, and bowing the spine to actually make that connection and give a strong uh, link through the body. But that's when we're doing the physical work. So anytime we're not physically in contact with something, we go back into a neutral spine. Mm -hmm. So we're getting this active bowing of the spine. So that could be flexing, extending, could be rotation, could be lateral, uh, lateral flexion of the spine. But it's, a, it's an active thing. What we don't want to do is have a stiff spine when we move. Uh, and you're if we're working you're with the, people. You're the first karate teacher which says that. What do you mean? You're not like that? Yeah. <laughs> spine. Don't move your spine at all. You have to be straight. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, that falls down to a lot of the stuff we were taught when we were kids as well. You know, when you're told at school, sit up straight. Yeah. No, straight. Yeah. And you think, <laughs> well, yeah, that the natural curves. The, the, what I tend to say to people is when we part of our warm up, we will stand up. I'll say, right, okay, adopt your uh, posture, one, one shoulder width, hip width or shoulder width wide, bring the heels out so the feet are in line. Uh, think about press through the floor, lift and lengthen through the crown and release down through the tailbone. And as soon as you start to drop through the tailbone, you can feel that you're connecting with those lower abdominals, the pelvic floor, you're activating through the, the, the transversus abdominis, uh, through the uh, diaphragm. So you're, uh, you're holding your center and you, are, you can feel you're actively stretching the spine. And then what we get people to do is actually just let it off a little bit. So it's, mm. it's switched on but it's not overactive. Mm -hmm. Extremes in anything are, are bad news. You know, you don't, you, you need to find that. I don't want to use the term middle road. It seems a little bit innocuous, but we want to find that sense of activation without overdoing it. I think um, uh, I've used this term and I know that uh, I've, I've heard this with a gentleman called Chris Wilder uh, mentioned this before. He talks about the Goldilocks principle. Mm -hmm. Not too much, not too little, just right just enough and that's dependent on the demands of the situation but that should always be our go-to a go-to our default situation our default setting rather this idea of not too much not too much tension not too little tension because you don't want to collapse but just enough just enough to maintain that anatomical structure get maintain that structural integrity mm. um, so i think that's really important it, it's funny how i don't know how it is in animal kingdom because i can't talk to animals yet um, but uh... you're working on it. One of your <laughs> many things that you are still to achieve. You have achieved loads, but there's still more. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you don't see that the, the cat or a dog going, "Oh shit, I need to now elongate my spine, sit." They're natural. It's only humans yeah. who forgot how to move. Yeah, it's you know we're so evolved and high thing, and we cannot control our body properly how it was designed. What do you always see animals do when they get up? They've been sitting down for Stretching, a while. Yeah. They get up, they stretch, they move, they mobilize, they get everything going. They get into every joint of the body and then they go about their business. Mm. We need to learn to do that. You know, we, we don't. We, we sit for 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour. We sit on computers. We sit and watch telly. We sit and eat. Uh, we sit and read a book. Um, but we need to get up and move regularly. We need to be moving as much as we're sitting down or almost as much. That might be hard work, I guess, <laughs> but uh, you know, we want to, we want to try and get up and move around and we want to stretch, just, just stretch, just enjoy the stretch. Mm. Not, and I don't mean stretch for the splits or, you know, or, you know, extremes of stretching, just mobilizing, getting things moving. Just, be just get up and move. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. It's uh, strange how, how, how we as a species um, are keen to undo everything which nature done for us, isn't it? Yes. It's because we wrap everything up. There's mm. nothing natural in the way we move. There's nothing natural in the way we live our lives. Don't get me wrong. I love my TV. I love my uh, iPad. 
Uh, I like uh, all sorts of the trappings of uh, modern day life. Uh, and I wouldn't really want to do without them. But I think we just need to get in tune with moving more. We need to be uh, learning to uh, listen to our bodies. And if our bodies are saying, oh, I'm tight there, I need to stretch, stretch it. Uh, just, just do it. You don't see an animal get up and think, okay, I've got to stretch now. What stretch am I going to do? It just moves where it's tight. It just to open up and release those tight areas. Mm. Um, trick that I use and that I think it works well for me seems to work well with the guys that I, I uh, train with as well is they, if they're particularly tight in any area of their body first of all when we stand before we do a class we'll, we'll, we will scan the body we will check the body from the feet up, right up to the top of the head out to the tips of the fingers so we'll do a scan and we think about releasing and softening each breath we think about softening and releasing the muscles releasing that tension so that you are just you have just enough tension to maintain structural integrity mm-hmm. uh, and then what we do is we start to think about uh everything being level everything being connected everything uh, so when we breathe in for the nose we breathe into the back uh softening down through the rib cage and then as we breathe out we soften we make sure we get that connection for the obliques through the pelvic floor uh through the um uh, deep abdominal muscles etc um, so this is really important. Even before we start to move, we have to spend our time thinking about our posture. Mm. And that might be 30 seconds, might be a minute, might be a couple of minutes. Depends how mean I am. I might do it for a little bit longer um, before we actually start to to move. But then when we move, we've got to stay connected. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I use in mind similar thing. We do um, spinal compression. Yeah, uh, with I don't know if you heard uh, uh, foundation training. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of tell me more. Standing up, I send you yeah. a link to the book. Uh, Doctor yeah, cool, Goodman, he is. Uh, it's it's funny because when he teaches, he starts with "I can't show you what I do, what you meant to do," because he suffered with the um, deterioration of his um, discs, so his spine is fused. But he's right. a um, doctor chiropractor chiropractic or whatever you're saying and he developed a set of kind of yoga positions but really right. incorporating the decompression of the spine so you elongated your um, postures and he started using that in one of the NHL and uh, NHL NHL NFL NFL uh, football league okay. uh, teams um, changed that for a warm-up and they had, uh, I don't want to quote, but it's huge percentage, like 20% less hamstring injuries compared to normal warm-up. Yeah. So I send you the links to his videos and stuff. I put it in a comment as well if you guys are interested. Um, yeah, I started using that, especially with my elderly, and mm-hmm. they've got the much better lower backs and hamstrings. So you just hold the position for about 30 seconds. Um putting tension on the, from the uh, crown to the sacrum, plus mm-hmm. squeezing legs, squeezing arms. So it fires up all the posterior chain. Yeah. So we start using that on every beginning, on the end of the session, and, and people really feel more mobile and stronger in, in, yeah. in the back. And plus I use the, uh, the fog method. So I tell people, imagine that they've got a fog around the tense muscle and when they're breathing, that fog disappears, and that seems to yeah. be kind of visualization of uh, relaxation, I suppose. Mm. Mumbo jumbo, as they call it. Well, that's where I was going. And then I sort of distracted myself. I was talking about breathing into the stiffness, breathing into the tight areas. Mm. So I tell people to imagine that uh, their tightness is uh, encased in a balloon. Mm. And when you breathe into the balloon, the balloon inflates and it starts to open up everything. Mm. And as that's you breathe cool. out, everything softens and lengthens. Um, so we use that as a visualization when it comes to releasing uh, tightness in the body. And that seems to get some um, quite good results. Yeah, and it doesn't yeah. take a lot of practice uh, to get the visual- visualization. Because I think visualization in movement is really important for us, it, whether it's for martial arts or whether it's for rehab or whether it's for whatever. This idea of using visualization to picture what's supposed to be happening to the body as you do whatever you're doing, I think is um, a very useful tool. And it can actually be developed to um, quite a high level. Mm. 
Um, so a very worthwhile uh, practice. Interesting talking about uh, the muscles as well there is that, um, as we were talking about earlier on, I had a, a bad back injury. Uh, one of my main rehab tools um, was actually to use Pilates. Um, so much so that I eventually took a qualification and, and I coach uh, Pilates in a rehab setting for all sorts of uh, conditions. Um, but they talk about, commonly talk about five muscular slings within mm. Pilates. And I find that crosses over very well into what we do within um, the martial arts setting. So you have your primary sling, which is your um, uh, pelvic floor, your transversus abdominis, your, tra your um, diaphragm, and your multifidus sp spinal muscles. Mm -hmm. So it's that, that muscular network. That's involved in everything. And then you have, uh, let's say they, they have five slings. You've got your posterior oblique sling. You've got your anterior oblique sling. You've got deep longitudinal sling. And you have your transverse sling. So all of these are mus muscular connections, which relate very much to the type of core movements we make now obviously that's a really basic model but it's a good starting model um, for movement in martial arts because everything then you realize everything actually starts from the middle and works its way out mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a really nice way of connecting and centering uh, and uh, it explains i think quite nicely how to connect the muscles mm -hmm. which is uh, a very difficult thing to get across to people i think yeah yeah lots of people have a um so i was working as a massage therapist um for some time and um people have got a really poor awareness of the body mm. the, the most trouble question i ask people always was um what is the type of the pain you're feeling and people cannot explain you know if it's a dull pain if it's a sharp pain if it's in this area that area it's painful here well, yeah. but can you describe something more about it? No. Um, I don't know. I spend a lot of time of thinking, you know, if I've got a pain, I kind of overanalyzing it. Where is it exactly? What type is the pain? When it comes in, when it comes off? Yeah. Yeah. If it's responsive to moving a fascia or is it responsive for a pressure point or whatever. So I kind of enjoy that process. But most of the people is just like, eh, there, pain, fix it. Mm. Isn't it? Yeah. I think as well with that, you, you have to sort of take into account that often when people have an ongoing pain, we go past the sort of the acute phase of pain, it becomes more of a chronic thing. Pain is a very tiring thing. Mm. It's mentally and physically draining. So oftentimes, I think when you ask people, particularly if they have that chronic pain set up, it's really hard for them to explain the pain mm. because it, it's just there all the time. It's, it's a bit like having a gnawing toothache you know it's just there all the time and it just that's, just it's so overpowering that, it takes that, away that, from that's that's my childhood pain pain in the teeth yeah yeah right so by 16 i had a half of them removed because of uh, um what do you call it abscesses and okay. rotten and stuff like that um so yeah so it was to the degree that you know my bottom tooth was aching and i thought it was a top because it resonates yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Right, yeah. I don't so know how around. it works, but yeah, it just uh, yeah nightmare. But um, changing the subject, we, I know you had a, your tooth done Good. today. So. <laughs> yeah, so I'm happy to change the subject. Uh, don't um, talk about dentists anymore. I've seen your post about a using the movement within the frame and a having a proprioception. So basically, doing the double moves. So oh yeah, yeah. Strike yeah. with the holding the hand. Tell me more. Well, um, really... Concept. What's the concept? Yeah, the, the idea is when we look at a lot of movement, um, when we... Let's use karate as our, as our model here. A lot of the time when we see techniques, they are overreached. You know, they're going to the point of... Uh, almost to the point of collapse. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's very easy to fall into the trap of when you do a movement, um, just because it makes it look better to overstretch it, to reach it out. Mm -hmm. Everything looks you know, like, it's like you said earlier on, straight back, extend out, lock the elbows out. No, joints shouldn't lock when we hit things. Um, our reach is, is compromised. Our technique is compromised if we 
lock joints. Okay, there's no room for error there. You know, and in fact, what it does is it compromises the structure. So what I try to get people to do is imagine they're in, um, <laughs> I was going to say, imagine they're in handcuffs. That might create the wrong sort of um, image uh, for what we're trying to talk about here. So we, we just uh, put one hand over the other, uh, wrist to wrist or forearm to forearm. It's not rigid, so you can move it around and we just sort of roll. As we do, we see these movements, this sort of jujuki element, I guess, mm-hmm. in, in we see in, in uh, our karate is this, uh, crossing of hands but we understand that actually that's a transitional movement mm-hmm. uh, we see a snapshot of it and we think that's the technique no jujuki is just a transition what it does for us is it reminds us that we have to use our center line mm-hmm. because to do the hands crossed outside of the center line is uncomfortable and untenable as a functional movement but what we it allows us to do is actually to measure just how far out i'm doing the movements here and i don't think anyone's going to see this obviously but they can maybe um, look up at the video we put I, on I, uh, facebook until i i understand it it's fine they don't need to yeah i see okay. i'm happy <laughs> i put the link so, in the video so the idea is if i'm going to punch i don't want to overreach and break down my structure i want to keep a nice strong frame okay and by strong i don't mean tense or, or muscular effort I want to keep a, a strong anatomical frame, um, good structural alignment. So when I punch, if I find that my hand has to come away from my wrist or forearm area, I've overreached my technique. Mm-hmm. What this does for us when we practice is if you keep your arms connected, when you punch, uh, if you reach too far, you'll know because it, it feels like it's pulling you out of your feet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, this has the bonus of allowing us to feel the connections through the whole body. You know, so we start off just by resting the hand lightly. Then we get a little bit of pressure back to that uh, um, Goldilocks principle, not too much, not too little, just right. Uh, so it gives us feedback. That means that I can press down through from my punch down into my feet. Uh, I can connect through my abdominals. I can feel that connection through my abdominals. Uh, this is normally something that people will experience better if they're actually doing the movement. But if um, you just place one hand on the back of your forearm and actually just press down on it, you can feel how that connects everything. The lats get involved, the abdominals get involved. Um, so we are going to just practice that idea of punching out, just rolling with the movement. This can be done for all of the blocks. This can be done. We did a little video where we did it with the four primary blocks uh, and the three linear punches. Um, and it works really well. I'm going I'm to put that video in a comment so people can have a look. Okay, yeah, cool. I'll That'd link, be good. link to that video, yeah. Yeah, but the same thing can be said for Kagazuki. Uh, you know, so you can link it, you can use that exercise to test the structure of your basic techniques. Mm. So particularly in all this training where we've not been able to work with anybody, we need to find ways to improve um, on our own. So little tips like uh, doing this to pressure test the structure um, when you're on your own, it's quite useful. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it, I, I, if you're going to throw a technique, you want to be able to follow it up with another technique. You don't want to have dead time. You don't want to have uh, um, open space, an open window for your partner or opponent to enter into that space. So if I overreach my technique, if I talk about the uh, ever-popular Hikate movement, of pulling the hand back to the hip, that leaves me wide, wide open. Mm. You know, irrespective of whether we're pulling something back with that, I have my own takes on, on uh, Hikate. That's a whole other conversation, I would imagine. Um, but um, we want to think in terms of offering as much protection to that center line as we can. That's our most vulnerable line. This is where you're going to generate the most power into the body when we strike into the, the center of mass or through the center of mass, depending <clears throat> on whether we're hitting arms or legs. Um, so we want to make sure that we offer as much protection as we possibly can to that center line. So when we look at the the maxim simultaneous uh, attack and defense, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're attacking, defending with the same limb, although it can. It means that in that sense of hands working to complement the movement, one hand is working defensively while the other hand is working offensively. 
if we're talking about hands on their own, um, which obviously it's a much bigger picture than that. But that, that's sort of a, a point we're trying to make uh, is that so we always want to think about um, protecting the line. So we're always in a position to defend. We're always in a position to attack. Uh, and when we teach, when I teach kata, um, I teach kata in a similar sort of way. I don't do the theatrics of, of kata. I don't have anything wrong with the theatrics of kata. I think it's a, a marvellous thing to watch. Uh, and one of my um, pet uh, things, what, what's, the, what's the term? I can't remember what the term is now. Uh, but there's yeah, pet peeves. No, no. It's, it's like um, um, guilty pleasures, I think was the oh, one right, I was yeah, looking yeah. for. Uh, I'm quite happy to watch um, competitive kata because when it's done well, it's a beautiful thing to watch. When you see people doing their acrobatic combinations, their the bunkai, <laughs> bunkai, yeah, that's a laugh in itself. But um, it's it's like watching a movie fight. It's mm. like watching the old kung fu movies of the seventies and eighties. So it's good fun, but it's not what I do. It's not what mm. you do. Uh, but it doesn't mean mean it's not um, fun. It also doesn't mean that they're not skilled. They're, you know, they're obviously highly skilled at what they do. But um, we, where was I going with that? You have to pull me back on track, Liz. I go <laughs> off on these tangents. You've got to bring me back online. Uh, structure um, and not overshooting. Yes, that's it. So they're, they're, it's back to something we mentioned earlier on, and that is that when we look at movement, we look at movement in Kata and Keon, we're seeing movements that are exaggerated to the point that they almost collapse. Mm. That's not the way they are meant to be applied. Kato and Keon are teaching vehicles to allow us to learn how to move more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Then we have to take that training, that experience, and put it into, um, let's call it a semi-live environment, because we're in a training environment where we're working with our partners. Everything in the dojo is, is it's not real. It's a, a sort of role play scenario training, isn't it? Um, we try and make it as real as we can, but it's never going to be real because everybody wants to walk home or drive home afterwards yeah. and come back again for the next session because they had a good time. Um, but the reality is, is that uh, when we look at applications, the applications happen within that movement. It's not that full expression. When you go into the, the uh, big movements of the kata, we have to understand that the impact point is en route. You know, mm -hmm. the, the transition <clears throat> is the most important part of that movement, not the final pose. So where we do our work is in that transition. I'm not saying the final pose isn't important. It's a bit like the, the argument between stances and footwork. You know, stances and footwork have to go together. Yeah, they're equally important. Stances are for stability. Footwork is to get you where you need to be. If you're not where you need to be, the stances are useless. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and also stances should become natural after training for a certain amount of time. Yes, you're looking at training structures, but and it's a bit like Katy, you're training the structure, but when you apply it, it wants to be fluid and it wants to be natural. It wants to be your movement. Yeah. Not you doing my movement. You and I are very different builds. Yeah, so we just would a, move differently. Just a little. I'm, I'm just a little bit taller. Yeah, you are, Ted. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do get a crick in my neck looking up at you when we when we when we meet up. But, um, but that's what we have to understand. It's not a case of everyone has to do things the same way. Yeah, we have the same parameters for a movement, so we have the same structures. But we have to explore, particularly when it comes to application, we have to explore what I often refer to as the line of best fit. Mm -hmm. Okay, So we understand the pathway through practicing the kion and practicing the kata. And then what we do is we discover our line of best fit by working with a partner. Very well okay? To give us that, that uh, resistance, give us that feedback. I'm finding that very challenging for my students most of my students, the, the um, let's say, the young, the, the younger who do contact karate, not the meditational karate, um, are people from different backgrounds. So either brown belt jujitsu, black belt, second dan, third dan. And when I tell them, you know, now we're doing katas, but I want you to see your expression of it, they don't know what to do. They no. just go there and look. But what do you mean? 
my expression. I say, I want to see your karate, not the copy of your teacher. Show me how you express the kata. And, and it takes quite a long of time for them to get used to the idea that they can actually do move, movements a little bit different than is expect, expected, I'm doing in quotes here, expected yeah. of them. I think it was a, a, an American pioneer, Goju Ryu, American Goju Ryu, um, Peter Urban. Yeah. Um, he did a book called, I think it was called The Karate Dojo. Um, interesting person. Um, and he, he, he referred to uh, doing kata as, uh, I think he referred to when you finally figure out what you're doing with the kata as coming out of the dance. And I think that's mm. quite a good way to think about it. We're teaching people mechanics. When we teach, mm. that we're in, in the kata, we're teaching them how to link mechanical movements to mechanical movements. So we're giving them that, allowing them to develop that fluidity, okay? Once we start to make it our own, then we're, we, we're coming out of the dance, whether we're applying it or not. It's, it's ours. It needs to be fluid. It needs to be smooth. You need to feel connected. You need to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. And often when we're doing kata, particularly if you're doing it for a test, you put people in a test environment and you can almost see their brain gears turning as they're thinking about what move comes next. Mm -hmm. um, so they're wrapped up in the mechanics rather than actually allowing the movements to happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. For me, yes, because I'm, I'm following the same principle. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's uh, not under, undervalued or underused. Um, I don't see many teachers applying that to students. I see carbon copies of people around and robots. I see a lot of robots. Yeah. There's a lot of that in martial arts, a lot of robots. And, it, it, you know, it's no, it's not good for us because we're built differently. We need to be able to move differently. As I use the same parameters. I mean, the, the, the old thing that uh, there's been a few posts uh, put up on uh, Facebook about it now, but uh, the, the old thing not, uh, the, where they talk about uh, kata is the soul of karate. Mm. Kata isn't the soul of karate. Kata's got nothing to do with being the soul of karate. We can say it's the spine of karate. We can say it's mm. the skeleton of karate. But actually, the, 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 the only way we get soul in what we do is by putting that into it ourselves. Mm, exactly. We provide the soul for our karate. And that way, it becomes an expression of us. And that's you know, it's not... And that's going to be the title of this one. Yeah. Soul, your soul in karate. <laughs> okay. I look forward to it. Um, um, I'm going to be brutally honest and I'm going to have to finish because I've got two terrorists to pick up from the school in ah, time. That's fine. That's cool. Um, but I've got a few other ideas that I would like to drag you into more conversations in the future. Love to. Really um, good fun. Because uh, I like I like your thinking. I like your mumbo jumbo, and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, it's good to um, cross check with you my ideas and stuff. And I'm I'm really looking forward to be able to train with you. Um, be more than in the past. I might uh, uh, be pay good you, fun. Pay, pay you a few visits when we when I be allowed um, to uh, get my nose bleeding again. <laughs> I look forward to it. Maybe <laughs> maybe you can do it back to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> it won't be the first time. Actually, I'm not much of a bleeder, not from the nose anyway. I've, I've, I had my nose um, smashed uh, many years ago. Somebody did a nice, really nice, brilliant uh, reverse uh, roundhouse and he caught me right across the bridge of the nose and there was this loud crack as it hit and I dropped to the floor uh, and, and there was no nothing, no blood, nothing. And yeah, the following day, I had two black eyes and an incredibly <laughs> swollen nose, but uh, still didn't have a, a nosebleed. The only person who's ever given me a nosebleed was my eldest son when he was actually only about uh, 13, 14 months old. He was, uh, it might have been a little bit older, but not much. I was sitting on the floor. He was sitting on the settee behind me and he reached over my head and stuck his fingers up my nose and yanked my head back. Oh, and no. he had these really, really sharp fingernails and my nose just opened up and blood went everywhere. It was uh, um, the, the first and only time I've had a really bad bloody nose. Yeah, so you've got my, something my, to aim for. 
Yeah, my nose is bleeding just when you see the punt coming. Before impact, <laughs> I already bleed. It's a bit of a pain in the ass. I should t- turn up to every fight with the tampons in. <laughs> Listen, before we go, I want to say keep up the good work. I'm really loving your podcast. You've done some uh, really good conversations with loads of really interesting people. Uh, I thought your chat with your young man, Danny Mason, was absolutely brilliant. Uh, such you. an inspiring young man. Uh, and he offered some really good advice, not just for people on the autistic spectrum, but also for martial artists in general. I think it's really, really good. But, you know, to pick out any is difficult because you've done some really, really good chats. Um, Thank you. And I think another one I'd recommend was the chat you did with Dr. James Hatch, which I thought was uh, a really interesting, a very interesting guy. And I loved his foul um, acronym. First attempt in learning. I thought that was brilliant. Really loved yeah. it. He's a, he's a great great guy. I'm gonna have him again on the podcast, I think. And he, he he's got access to um, very unique people. He put me in contact with Mike Clark, right? Um, and he's putting me in contact with somebody else who withdrawn from the public, but he's gonna be releasing some new projects. And I hope it's not confirmed yet. I hope I'm going to be able to chat with him, but I won't tell you who it is. I think I might know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thank you very much for today. Uh, Absolute pleasure. Looking, Always good to talk to you. This is really good fun. We're looking forward to our next chat. Maybe you're going to yeah. become a regular thing. Good. I hope so. You take cool. care and I'll speak bye to you bye. soon. Bye bye.